Our uh, first scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I will be reading from uh, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And from the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 1, 14 through 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, That was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. And our scripture reading today, our sermon reading text comes from Exodus chapter 8. I'll read verses 1 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the house of your servants and your people and into the ovens and your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up upon you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up over the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret art and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me what I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the country yards, and the fields. And they gathered together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So uh, we are continuing our study of Exodus, working through the uh, 10 uh, signs that Moses performed before Pharaoh in order to compel Pharaoh to release the Israelites. Now, as I mentioned last week, I am purposely using this word sign rather than the more traditional plague. Uh, 
And the reason I'm doing this is uh, mostly foremost because it's what matches the language of the text. That's the phrase that's used in the text. These are not called plagues. They are called signs and wonders. And the reason I think this is important is that plagues imply that they were simply disasters or punishments. Now, that is true. Uh, but it's not the most important truth here. Remember, this whole standoff between Pharaoh and Yahweh began when Pharaoh refused to send the Israelites away because he did not know Yahweh. And a major theme of the book of Exodus is the identity of Yahweh. Who is this Yahweh? Uh, At the burning bush, Yahweh reveals his name, and he promises an even bigger revelation of his being, his character, of who he is, than were known by the Israelite forefathers. And these 10 signs are part of this revelation about who Yahweh is. Remember, the reason it's important to use signs are because signs are specifically symbols that point to something. That's what makes it a sign. And so the point of each of these signs is to communicate to Pharaoh, to the Israelites, and, and to us, some aspect of who Yahweh is. Now, This week, we are looking at what is objectively the coolest of the ten signs, okay? At least I think so. Frogs. Because it's just absolutely bonkers, isn't it? I I heard people, like, laughing as we were reading this, which is kind of intimidating when you've got, like, this sacred text that you're trying to read, and you're like, I get to talk about frogs this week. Um, Yeah, there's even some weirder stuff here I won't go into because of time, but all of a sudden... There are frogs everywhere. And the text is very clear about how bad this frog infestation really is. It really wants to give you a very uh, bright, you know, vivid picture of the extent of this. Frogs in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in the oven, in the cookware. And you have to remember that back then, people did not sleep on elevated beds the way we do. Okay, that, that wasn't a thing. They slept on mats on the ground. Uh, as the ground, like the places where frogs hang out, right? Um, where they hop around. So imagine how annoying it must have been. You know, you, you spent all day shooing away frogs, and then you finally go to bed to try to get some sleep, and you have these frogs, which frogs are nocturnal. <laughs> and they're jumping all over you. And I mean, can you even imagine what the noise must have been like all night long? I mean, I sleep outside a lot and I like to hear the sounds of nature when I go to sleep, but this must be on like a totally new level. Uh, it specifically mentions that they have frogs uh, all up in their cookware. Now, here's the thing you need to understand about Egypt. They did not have like a huge source of quality lumber which means they didn't have shelving, okay? They were not going to Ikea, putting together, you know, pantries. So all their pots and utensils would have been on the ground as well, okay? You know, within frog jumping, uh, you know, distance. Uh, And I love the fact that the uh, Exodus tells us that the frogs were specifically in the kneading bowls, all right? Like, it makes a point to tell us that. And, you know... This is important because, like, in most ancient cultures, uh, bread was, like, super important because that was your big source of calories. Like, we get calories, like, no problem, right? But calories back in the day were really hard to come by. You needed calories for energy, and so bread was awesome because it was, like, this huge calorie bomb. So 
You know, it's no surprise. They had this special set of cookware to make bread with, okay? And bread would have been one of these tasks that was done daily. It would have been like a really important, you know, ritual. Now, here's the thing you need to understand here. Um, the Egyptians would have made bread similar to, to something like sourdough. You know, so it, it would have, um, you know, if you know how bread, if you've ever made sourdough, who's made sourdough? Somebody's got to make sourdough. Right, like lots of people here raising their hand, right? Right, like you know how it works. Like you mix some, you know, water and some grain and you have some yeast and you create like this starter, right? You call it the starter and you have, and it's the reason it starters because it has this live yeast. And so what you do is you put it in with your, uh, you know, flour and then the yeast does its thing. And, but you keep aside part of that starter, right? Because you're going to use that again the next day. And so you always have some of this starter uh, reserved. Well, they did the same thing. You know, they would make their bread and they would keep a little, you know, when they mix their dough, they would keep a little bit of it aside, you know, so they, they could use it the next day because it would have the activated yeast because you couldn't go to, um, you know, Food Lion and get your little packet of activated yeast, right? I know. I know. No Food Lions in Egypt. That's probably a good thing. Like, we really need Food Lion. Yeah. Good point. Um, so, they would keep this little bit of uh, starter dough in their nini bowls. Well, now you got frogs in it. And what do you think the frogs did? <laughs> they probably ate it or pooped on it. Yeah, probably something like that. Anyway, you're not using that starter is what I'm getting at here. So the frogs are contaminating or consuminating your starter. They're preventing bread production, which is your big source of calories. Uh, so, you know, this plague is certainly not deadly, Okay, but it's pretty much ruining your life. Okay, uh, it's probably a bigger deal. You know, we kind of look at it, frogs. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like uh, like you kind of see it as just being like a nuisance, but it was probably a pretty pretty big deal. Um, and that's why the text is giving us all these points uh, because it wants us to kind of understand just how annoying this would have been. Now, at this point, you may be thinking to yourself. Uh, I mean, this is what I would be thinking. This is what Miles left. He would have been thinking. He would, I guarantee you Miles would be thinking this. What's the big deal? There's frogs everywhere. Why don't the Egyptians just sharpen up their frog gigs and then frog legs for everyone? <laughs> now, it would still be another 600 years before the Persians would introduce the Egyptians to chicken. However, if the Egyptians had fried up the frog legs, they would discover that the Persian chickens tasted just like them. <laughs> But the Egyptians didn't, so they couldn't, because they wouldn't, because Egyptians wouldn't kill frogs. Frogs, it turns out in Egypt, were a sacred animal. Ah, that's the twist here, right? This isn't just like, oh, you know, what's a really annoying animal that I could use to drive these Egyptians crazy? This, frogs were chosen for a reason, because in the Egyptian mind, Frogs were connected with creation. How does that work? Okay, you can kind of follow the logic. So, you know, each year the sacred river, the Nile, would flood. And then out of the mud, frogs appear. Okay? Um, 
the Egyptians thought the frogs were spontaneously generated, actually. And so in their minds, you know, frogs became associated with this mysterious idea of birth, you know, the renewal, fertility, like all those ideas were kind of in the Egyptian minds, you know. All of a sudden, the Nile floods, it's springtime, we hear all these frogs, they just kind of like magically appear, they're everywhere along the Nile, oh great, this is really cool. Uh, And in fact, we know how much fertility in particular was connected with uh, frogs because Egyptian women would actually use magic wands with frogs carved on them to protect themselves during their pregnancy and to protect their babies. Uh, we find amulets, amulets in Egypt with frog images on them that were meant to promote fertility. They, we actually have like lots of examples of them. They're really cool. Have all these like really carved, intricately detailed frogs, and they're actually magical devices for the Egyptians to use. But it was always connected with this fertility. Now here's something really cool. Okay, you know how Egyptian has the hieroglyphics, right? The hieroglyphic, the the, the frog was actually used in a hieroglyphic. And it meant the number 100,000. Okay. So if you saw a frog, you thought 100,000, right? Like that's the number the frog was associated with. And, that, and like in Egypt, that was like a huge number, you know? And so, you know, not only was like it used for like 100,000, it was just used for like, you know, kind of like the way we might say like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, y- Maybe like NC State dominated the competition so much that they scored like a billion points against them. You know, when you're just like, you're not trying to be specific, you're just trying to be hyperbolic, right? So like frogs was kind of like, you know, this is so abundant. You know, it's just like this huge number. Um, So, you know, you have this idea of this fertility, this abundance. That's what's kind of associated in Egypt with frogs. Um, Now, all of these concepts were personified in this Egyptian goddess who was named Hecate. So Hecate is this Egyptian goddess of fertility, of abundance, of, you know, birth, of all. And Hecate is pictured as this, like, frog lady, okay? So you can find these, like, you know, pictures and artwork in Egypt of, uh, of Hecate, and she looks really cool. I kind of like it. It's kind of like weird, you know, frog, frog goddess. Um, so, you know, my point here is that you can see in the Egyptian mind, uh, frogs were not chosen as just like an arbitrary symbol. This had significance. Frogs had an exalted status uh, because of their association with all these, like, you know, really good things like birth and fertility and so forth. And, uh, you know, this goddess Hecate, so that's why they were sacred, and that's why you didn't kill frogs. And so that's why the Egyptians didn't eat frog legs. No frog legs, all right? So, you know, again, this is, this is like, got to be like really weird for them because they kind of revere these frogs, and yet they're everywhere, driving them crazy, eating their starter dough, and all that kind of stuff. You know, if you've made sourdough starter, like it takes, that's like quite a process, isn't it? Yeah. So you'd be really upset if a frog ate it. Yeah. Right. Now, once you understand these uh, these Egyptian ideas about p- frogs, you're probably you know starting to see the, you know what's going on here. This isn't just some random animal getting up all in the Egyptians' business. Um, it's a sign. Okay. Remember, these are signs. This is why it's important that we don't still call this a plague and just stop and just say frogs are annoying. Frogs everywhere is annoying. 
once we start to understand the connections here, we start to understand that this is a sign and signs are telling us something. They're telling us something specifically about who Yahweh is. Okay, um, so what's going on here? Uh, remember that the Israelites had coexisted with the Egyptians quite well until a Pharaoh came to the throne who uh, Exodus tells us did not know Joseph. The Pharaoh looked at the, this Pharaoh looked at the Israelites and he saw how numerous they are, how numerous was becoming, and he saw that as a threat. Now, as a reader, because we know the story, uh, we're not surprised that the Israelites had become numerous, okay? God had promised their ancestors way back in Genesis that they would be blessed and would become numerous, God had, uh, had brought about fertility, birth, and abundance to the Israelites. But rather than viewing that as the blessing that God intended, Pharaoh saw it as a threat. Okay, So Yahweh had, had, had done what he said he was going to do. He had given them abundance and fertility and blessing, which was a good thing. But Pharaoh and the Egyptians saw them as a threat. So it's no coincidence that Yahweh is using their own symbol of birth, fertility, and abundance to demonstrate to the uh, Egyptians just how far he can go. All these frogs show just how much abundance Yahweh is capable of releasing. They fear abundance, and Yahweh's like, you got no idea. I'll show you. Um, now, we also see in the story the magicians making their appearance again. Uh, so, And when called upon, they uh, all they can do is conjure up more frogs, which is really the exact opposite of what you want. And so here again, I think these, these magicians, you know, they kind of function as co comic relief here. And I think it's pretty hilarious as you think about it. Um, imagine how perturbed Pharaoh must have been. You know, he summons his magicians and then they go through all through their incantations to demonstrate their power. They're like, look, Pharaoh, we got more frogs. You know, if Pharaoh texted back then, I think he would have used the face plant emoji, you know? I think that's it, right? So, so we, have, uh, we have covered now how this sign of the frogs was understood by the Egyptians. That's, that's how the, the sign was understood, uh, you know, part of what's going on here. However, <clears throat> the, what I want to do next is uh, try for us to understand what this uh, sign would have communicated to the Israelites. What would it have told the Israelites about Yahweh? And in order to do so, what we're going to do is we're going to take Exodus here and we're going to read it in the light of the book of... Caden, your turn. If we want to understand Exodus, Genesis, right? So... I think if we do that, there's another point the, the text is trying to make. So if you look at Exodus 8, 3, verse 3, it says that the Nile shall swarm with frogs. Okay, that's what my translation says, swarm. You might, your, your translation might say team, okay, T-E-E-M. And it's trying to describe uh, what would soon occur uh, when the frogs were unleashed upon Egypt. Now, the Hebrew word here is sharats. And it's, it's actually a pretty rare word. It's used only a few times in the Bible. But five times it's used in Genesis. Like Genesis uses this a lot. And every time it's used in conjunction with the abundance of creation. Uh, first in Genesis 1 story. Okay? So, you know, when it starts talking about when God's creating the animals, he, he, it says that they swarm 
upon the earth, or team upon the earth. Uh, it's used again after uh, creation is recreated after the flood story. Again, like, you know, God's bringing back uh, creation after the flood, after the destruction of the flood. And he talks about them all being swarmed or teeming again. And so by using this word specifically here, what Exodus is trying to do is uh, we're, we're being directed to understand the frogs in terms of creation. Yahweh is the powerful God of creation. And now the Israelites are seeing what happens when his creative power is unleashed. But there's a bit more here going on than just that. Notice that in this sign, Yahweh is specifically using animals kind of against human beings. In Genesis, uh, humanity is giving the task of ruling over creation. Here, animals are ruling over human beings. In fact, this is the first of several of these signs in which nature is directed against humanity. Uh, we'll actually see it in the third, fourth, and eighth sign, and we can even make a little bit of a case for it for the first and the ninth. The point here is this is not how the universe is supposed to work. The boundaries and the divisions that establish order and regularity are being undone. And so what we have is an undoing of creation. We have chaos. Now, all of this is really interesting. But notice this story is not just about the Egyptians being annoyed at frogs, okay? The story goes on past that. And I think there's some really cool stuff that, that, that we sometimes overlook because we get focused on the frogs, which, like, I get it. I'm, I'm kind of focused on the frogs. Um, so the story continues because after the magicians add to the frog population, Pharaoh has no choice but to ask Moses to intercede before Yahweh so that Egypt can be rid of all these frogs. And for some reason at this point, I picture Pharaoh talking like Samuel L. Jackson in Snakes on a Plane. Someone needs to get the... No, we, we won't finish the quote. But um, Moses uses Pharaoh's request here as an opportunity to further demonstrate Yahweh's power. Yahweh will take away the frogs, but Pharaoh gets to decide when. And, and that way, Pharaoh knows that this is no mere trick. You know, this is beyond uh, just a simple magic trick. It's the same reason why, you know, if you ever see a magician try to perform a card trick, they, they let you pick the card. They let you pick the number. It's because they're trying to let you have some sort of, feel like you have some sort of control to show, like, wow, this is not just some simple trick. This, you know, guy's, like, maybe real or something like that. It's kind of the same thing. So, you know, it's the same. It, Moses is kind of being like, pick a time, anytime, Pharaoh. And notice in verse 6, Moses says this is happening so Pharaoh would know there was none like Yahweh. Now, at several points in the story of these signs, we learn that Pharaoh is more impressed with the precision of the sign than the power of the sign. And that actually kind of makes sense if you think about it, because Pharaoh and the Egyptians are polytheists. They have lots of gods. Um, it's no, really no big deal for them to add Yahweh to, uh, you know, another, uh, to their list of powerful gods. The difference was that none of the gods in Egypt were all powerful. They were limited in some ways. And so controlling their power with such precision uh, seems to be a feature that will continually impress Pharaoh. We're going to see that, that kind of idea reoccur, so that's, that's why I'm kind of laying it out there for you and pointing it out. However, the next detail here is what I think is the most amazing, okay? Uh, you know, the great 
uh, frog unpleasantness of, you know, 1406 BC or whatever comes to an end because Moses agrees to Pharaoh's request and cries to Yahweh. The word cries is used there to take away the frogs. So think about that for a sec. Pharaoh is like totally on the ropes here. He knows he's beat. The magicians are just adding to the problem. What's Pharaoh going to do? There are frogs everywhere. The frogs have broken him. Moses and the Israelites have like won at this point. Yahweh's prevailed and has shown Pharaoh who really controls the forces of abundance and fertility. Now, you would think at this point that the right thing to do would be to just like push on further. Not to pray and take these away, but I think that's part of the point of what's going on. Remember, all through this story, there were a lot, if the goal is just to release the Israelites and free them, that could have been accomplished in any number of ways. Much simpler. We didn't need 10, 10 of these signs. But more is being communicated here. An entire way of thinking is being taken down uh, by what goes on here. And we need to see that. So let's go back to uh, Pharaoh's mentality. For Pharaoh, it's all about power. Power is everything to Pharaoh. That's why you curry favor with the gods. That's why you make the appropriate sacrifices. It's because of power. The whole system is predicated on power. Might makes right. The powerful do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. Pharaoh has no problem enslaving these Egypt or Israelites. He didn't care. He has the power to do it. It's great. None of the gods are like, you know, you really shouldn't enslave people. That's bad. That's not how things work. If you had the power, you got to do it. Pharaoh was not bothered by the morality. He's not bothered by anything. Their world was all about powerful forces, and each had their own sphere of influence. And the key was to make the right allies and give those uh, powers, those gods, what they needed. It was about alliances. It was about deals. It was about bargains. Yahweh, by contrast, doesn't operate that way. Yahweh is all-powerful. Yahweh created everything. Yahweh doesn't need anything. Yahweh doesn't need to be appeased. Instead, Yahweh has a relationship with his people. He deals with them like a father does a child. Or a a, a mother and a father do a child. I didn't mean to be sexist there. Um, Yeah, that is why Pharaoh refers to uh, Israel as his firstborn. Okay, it is all about that uh, paternal child relationship. That's how Yahweh views the world. That is not how things worked in Egypt. In this case, the universe operates on a different principle than controlling the world by imposing your will on others through the accumulation of power. This is a totally different way of looking at the world. And so part of what's going on here is demonstrating to Pharaoh and demonstrating to the Egyptians and demonstrating to the Israelites exactly how different Yahweh's uh, Yahweh's way of thinking, Yahweh's relationship is, and the way the world works is from their own. And what Moses is doing, he's demonstrating through this prayer, is that something else is going on. It's an entirely different ethos than the world had known. It's an ethos of a loving God who is a creator, who desires life, abundance, and prosperity for all his people, and wants to show even his enemies that they don't have to live life the way they think they do. 
The world doesn't have to be a game of power struggle. It doesn't have to be a, a game of manipulation. Yahweh instead is showing that there's another path, one of forgiveness and mercy that breaks uh, the, the hold of power and violence that has characterized the world uh, since Cain. Pharaoh will again and again reject this path. Part of this story is the fact that Pharaoh just can't get away from viewing this world in terms of power. But if these signs are, as I have suggested, a pointer to who God is, then part of what God is doing is showing to Egypt and Israel is that God is offering another way of being human, another way of being in the world. This is the God whose people pray for their enemies. When they are on the verge of winning, they pray to end suffering rather than to twist the knife further, which is like a really extraordinary thing, praying for your enemies. Um, you know, so, so, you know, when Jesus makes the statement that we read in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies, this is the first time we've seen it. It goes all the way back to Exodus. It's fundamental to who uh, Yahweh is. Now, there's a logic to this, too. This isn't just about like, oh, this is a really pious, like, uh, you know, high-minded way to be. There's a logic to it. And this logic perfectly demonstrates the difference between Pharaoh's system of being in the world and Yahweh's system. And it's exactly what the frogs have been trying to show us. And that sounds like a really good way to wrap up the sermon. So here's how it works. Pharaoh's world is a world of anxiety. An anxiety that results from scarcity. Exodus begins with the Pharaoh viewing the Israelites with fear. There are too many of them. They may want to take all my stuff. They may uh, ally with my enemies. Pharaoh gives no evidence for this fear. He simply says it's a possibility. He doesn't remember that the Israelites were given their land in Egypt precisely because they had brought abundance and prosperity to Egypt. The, uh, The Israelites in every way were allies. But Pharaoh's fears drive him to enslave the Israelites, and he uses them to build store cities. We're specifically told that. And I think that detail is included in there because it's important, because it's pointing out to us that that what we need to do is understand that Pharaoh is totally motivated by this fear of scarcity. He's worried about, he has to store things, right? That's what he's doing there. And now, what's the contrast to that? The contrast is what Yahweh does. Yahweh leads the Israelites by a different mentality. Yahweh is a God of abundance. That is why using the Egyptian symbol of abundance and making it more abundant is so illustrative here. Unlike the world of Pharaoh, the world of Yahweh is characterized by this abundance. Life is not a zero-sum game where if one wins, the other must lose. Therefore, the followers of Yahweh can be characterized by not anxiety of uh, scarcity, but generosity. That means they can do totally crazy things like pray for their enemies. If their enemies prosper, that doesn't take any away from themselves. Praying for their well-being is like the ultimate symbol of what an embarrassment of riches they have. It's why the followers of Christ should be characterized by this trait of generosity. So, What I want us to do, I want us to conclude, I want to wrap this up by concluding with a passage from John 1. And I think this passage describes it perfectly. If you look at the passage we read from John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among among us. 
Of course, here John is talking about Jesus, and he's equating Jesus with this term word. And what John is communicating to us is that Jesus is the word, the creative force that orders the universe. You know, this this example of this, like, the, the creation ethic that God has. And he goes on to say, uh, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the son for the, from the father, full of grace and truth. So notice that, that abundance language, glory, fullness. Uh, and then uh, we, he, John wants us to see the magnificence and abundance contained in Jesus. And we read in verse 16, for from his fullness, there's the word fullness again, we have received what? Grace upon grace. Again, we have this fullness, this idea of fullness, and it culminates in this statement that we have about who Jesus is, grace upon grace. And I love this phrase, grace upon grace, because I think it fully communicates this unbelievable abundance that God has given the world. That is the logic that is operating here. So for us, what we are to do you know, with a story about frogs is to think, you know, how, how, how does this, this idea about God creating abundance, how does this letter live our lives free from anxiety? How does it help us believe that God has given us everything and that God is a God who is characterized by generosity so that we can even pray for our enemies, knowing that takes nothing away from us because we have been given grace upon grace.